Uh, turn please to 1 Chronicles 17 tonight. First Chronicles chapter 17. <clears throat> and let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to begin, we're going to work our way through the chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. But we will begin by reading verses 1 and 2 tonight. First Chronicles 17. Now it came to pass, as David sat in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in an house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. Then Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. And let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray your blessing upon our service tonight. Thank you always for speaking to us for the condescension you show in talking to us mere mortals, the objects of your love. And for expressing your love to us and your greatness that we should know in so many ways. Thank you for the hope contained in the text tonight. I pray that you would help us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. <clears throat> Well, the book of First Chronicles has actually begun with Adam. It goes back to the very beginning. Nine chapters of genealogies that start with Adam and make a beeline to the tribe of Judah, which is the ruling tribe. The tribe that will be the tribe of kings, of men like David and of Solomon. It will pay homage to other tribes along the way. For the most part, the book speaks highly of all of the Israelites it mentions. Saul being the, one of the few exceptions. And then the chronicler turns our attention to Levi, the religious tribe. Of the 12 tribes, one is the ruling tribe and one is the religious tribe, so to speak. The tribe charged with the religious services of Israel. After establishing those two tribes in their prospective roles, then the attention is turned to King Saul, whose reign is unsuccessful. <clears throat> and then immediately our attention is drawn to David, the man who becomes in many ways the centerpiece of the entire book of 1 Chronicles. Not for David's sake. Not because we need to try and imitate David or be like David or simply treat David as some kind of human hero. But because of the plan that God has for himself that will come through David and is represented by David. And now here we are, 500 years after the death of David. And although I will turn to this at the very end, with no David in sight, by the way, there will not be and there has not been another king of Israel. We are being told about the king of Israel. 
Chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles then presents to us the genuine significance of David's reign. And that is the title that we have, I have put on the message, the significance of David's kingdom. David was a godly man, and we are glad for that. And David was a heroic warrior, and we are glad for that. And David was an upright politician, and how we would love to have some of those, a man with some backbone. But the true mark of David is what God had for him and how God would use him. This is a companion passage to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And they describe for us what we know as the Davidic covenant. One of the main covenants of the Bible God made a covenant with Abraham, and the Abrahamic covenant is of vital importance to our understanding of the Bible. And God made a covenant with Noah that we are glad for, and God made a covenant with David, and God made a covenant with New Testament people. We are glad for God's covenants, for his binding himself with obligations and promises. The passage this evening we're going to deal with under three sections. We'll look at them, and then as we always do, we'll draw a couple of applications from them at the beginning. We've already read in verses 1 and 2 the first turn of events in this chapter, and that is David's reasoning. Now it came to pass as David sat in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedars, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord remaineth under curtains. Then Nathan said today unto David, Do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. <clears throat> Second Samuel 7's account tells us that this event happened after God had given David rest over all his enemies. The kingdom is secure, and David lives at peace. I think additionally, <clears throat> although the text does not attribute it to that, I think additionally is the fact that David has brought the seat of government back to Jerusalem. He has, brought, he has come to Jerusalem, he has built his house in Jerusalem, and he has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. They are brought together for the first time in the same city. And this is not dangerous, this is good, but I would just remind us, folks, that God has to this point and will continue to be very attentive to his insistence that the king be the king and the priest be the priest and they do not cross offices. And part of Saul's downfall was when he crossed over into the role of the priest. When he waited for Samuel who didn't show up and so Saul's explanation is, I had no other choice, I forced myself, I offered this offering and Saul said, Samuel said, boy that was a really bad idea. God had a role for the king, but he was not the religious leader. And God had a role for the priest, but he was not the king. And they never mingled, and they will mingle one time and one time only, folks. And that is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the reasons that that little tiny psalm, Psalm 110, is so significant to us biblically. 
Because it is the psalm that explains in just a few verses that Christ will rule and Christ will be the religious leader. Only one man in all of history has ever been worthy to share that kind of power, Jesus Christ. But to go back to our text and to our story this evening, David is sitting in his house and the 2 Samuel 7 paints what I think is really a very beautiful picture, one that is easily to relate to, of two men who are godly men, who are genuine companions, having a relaxing moment, re- reliving God's great victories. And David says, there is for all of that a problem. Here I live in this beautiful house made of cedar wood, And God, via the ark, is how David views it, is living in a tent. Nathan, who is a godly man, Nathan is the man who will call out David for his sin with Bathsheba. He is no marshmallow of a man himself. He is no yes man for David. Says, do what's in your heart. Verse number two. Because he understands what's in David's heart. And he understands that David is a good man. And that what David wants to do is build a house for the Lord. So that he can try to set things right. It's not right that David has a nicer place to live than God does. And Nathan goes on to assure David at the end of verse number 2. That God will approve this. So here's where we are at the end of verse number two, folks. Here's the reasoning. David thinks it's a good idea. Nathan thinks it's a good idea. Nathan thinks that God thinks it's a good idea. Then we come to verse number three. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Verses 3 through 15 are God's revelation. Let's read them. And it came to pass the same night, the night that they had this conversation, that the word of God came to Nathan. Because that's the way it works. The word of God goes to the prophet, and the prophet gives the word of God. Go and tell David, my servant, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel unto this day, but have gone from tent to tent, from one tabernacle to another, wheresoever I have walked with all Israel. Spake I a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedars? Now therefore, thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, even from the following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Also I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more as at the beginning." And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee an house. 
And it shall come to pass when thy day shall be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words, and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So God spoke to Nathan all those words, and Nathan, being a faithful prophet, told David all those words. Structurally, God did this two ways. In verses 4 through 6, he addressed the subject matter negatively. He addressed the subject matter negatively. And in fact, folks, the grammar in the Hebrew is particularly emphatic that it isn't building a house that is a problem. It is David building a house that is a problem. David you will not build me a house. You will not build me a house. It will not be you. And then God God goes on just to talk with David in verse number 5 and verse number 6. I haven't had a house yet. I haven't had a house. The fact that I haven't had a house has not posed any problem. Wherever Israel has gone, I have gone. Israel has been portable. I am portable. This has not posed any great problems to me. Verse number 6, I have not ordered you to build a house. Not my idea to build a house. And while the fact that I don't have a house made of cedar may be a problem to you, David, you need to know that it is not a problem to me. But then in verses 7 through 15, God speaks positively to David. It is not all penetrating questions. And and the questions are penetrating, right? Here Here is a good and godly man with a really solid idea. And what he encounters is a God who is not at all grateful for his offer of help. Who does not in any way appreciate his idea. Who told you to build me a house? I didn't tell you to build me a house. Do you think I need it? Have I needed a house yet? What have you experienced in the history of Israel that has caused you to think that I need a house? I don't need a house. But then again, because God is not just trying to rebuke David, he is instructing David, he speaks to him positively by pointing out in verses 7 and 8, that the absence of a house has not posed any problems to God's activity. That that the fact that God doesn't have this house does does not hinder his progress. For instance, verse 7, Now, therefore, thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith Lord of hosts, put this in parentheses in your mind, who doesn't have a house. I took thee from the sheep coat, 
Again, he's not trying to be insulting, but everybody needs to have some remembrance, folks, of our lowly estate. What was David? He was just a teenage shepherd. David was a genuine nobody. And, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. David was nothing. He was, just, he was just one of many dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands, of young men who got up every day and took care of the family sheep and goats. Braver than some, perhaps. More dedicated than some, perhaps. But just a shepherd boy. And the God who doesn't have a house picks David and elevates David to the place of being the ruler over Israel and making his name like the great names of the earth. And to this day, folks, how many people do we meet named David? It is still a tremendously highly regarded name, David. I took you out of obscurity and I raised you to prominence and I did all that even though I didn't have a house. And I want you to know in verses 9 and 10 that I have a plan of permanence in place. It's not that I don't have a house because I never thought about having a house. It's not like the idea had never crossed my mind. And it's not like I'm opposed to having a house. But my people haven't yet been permanent and I have a plan for their permanence. I will ordain a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. And they shall dwell in their place and shall be moved no more. Now remember that the people who are reading this in 1 Chronicles have certainly have access to 2 Samuel. But they also know what you and I both know, and that is that to them, 2 Samuel is old history, but this has just arrived hot off the printing presses. These are people whose removal from the land is fresh in memory. Shall be moved no more, neither shall the children of wickedness waste them anymore, is at the beginning. There is a prophetic voice there, folks, and we will come back to this. This is, this is a tremendous prophecy in this chapter. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee a house. I have a permanent plan in place. I'm not opposed to a house. It's not like I never thought about a house. But the people of Israel have not had a permanent dwelling place. And David, you are not going to be the guy to build me the house. But instead, I will make you a house. And I think you recognize, folks, the play on words there. This is not a, this is not a stick and stones structure. This is a dynasty kind of house. This is a lineage in perpetuity. David, you're thinking about building me a structure made out of stone. And although God does not say this, right, but the reality is, is that 
David's sights are not nearly high enough. I will build you a house. And here's how it will work. Verses 11 through 14. Would come to pass when thy days be expired that I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons and I will establish his kingdom. He will build me a house. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. Now this is short-term prophecy if you want to think of it that way. Because this is a prophecy that extends to Solomon. And I want to take great pains to point out, folks, or not spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to note that that is not a promise about Christ. That is a promise about Solomon. And if we were to go back into 2 Samuel, we would see it even more clearly because God talks about David's son Solomon doing things that it could never be thought of Jesus doing. Jesus will never sin. He will never need to be chastened as a sinful man. And he will build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever, and he will be my son. And here's another evidence, folks, that we're not talking about Jesus. I will not take my mercy away from him, like I did from Saul. So David has reasoning in his mind. He wants to do something for God. He wants to build a house. And God has a response to David's reasoning. And the answer is no, it will not be you. And it's not as good an idea as you think. And you haven't, I mean, if, you, if we wanted to put it in these kind of terms, you haven't thought long enough about this or deeply enough about this or large enough about this. But I have. I've thought about the nation of Israel, and I've thought about permanence. And we're going to come back to this, folks, because God keeps talking about perpetuity, and he keeps talking about perpetuity to a people who have no king. There is no king in Israel. The remainder of the chapter, then, beginning in verse number 16, and we will now turn our attention to that of David's response. How does David respond to this information? And I would just point out, folks, because it's nowhere to be found in the text, that it is worthy of note that David is such a man of godly integrity that he is not offended by the rebuke he has just received. Verse number 16, David the king came. And sat before the Lord, whatever that would entail. You can just imagine him going to some secluded spot, perhaps in his kingdom, or perhaps out someplace away from people, and just got into the presence of the Lord. And said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? Verses 16, 17, 18 describe David's speechless humility And yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God. For thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come, 
and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God, O Jehovah Almighty. What can David speak more to thee for the honor of thy servant? For thou knowest thy servant. What do I say as a man such as I to a God such as you about this decision? Who am I to be on the receiving end of this great blessing? And yet, as great as the blessing is to me, it is such a small thing for you to have done. And David is not demeaning the blessing, folks. He is just putting it in perspective. The God who could do anything, this is what he has done. The God who could do anything. And here I am, see David gets it now. Finally the light goes. Here I am talking about sticks and stones. And you are talking about perpetuity. Speechless humility. What a perspective. A perspective, is it not folks, a perspective that is easily lost in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day living. That we live in light of eternity. In verses 19 through 22, David just simply turns himself to the adoration of God. Sitting before the Lord. O Lord, for thy servant's sake and according to thine own heart, Hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things? O Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his own people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness, you know that means to be awesome, by driving out nations from before thy people whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt. For thy people Israel, for thy people Israel didst thou make thine own people forever, and thou, Lord, becamest their God. Adoration. It isn't just me, God, in your greatness you picked Israel to be your people. And then in verses 23 through 27, David prays. And he asks things of the Lord. Therefore, now, Lord, let the thing that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as thou hast said. Let it even be established that thy name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And let the house of David, thy servant, be established before thee. For thou, O my God, hast told thy servant that thou wilt build him in house. Therefore thy servant hath found in his heart to pray before thee. And now, Lord, thou art God, and hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now therefore let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may be before thee forever. For thou blessest, O Lord, and it shall be blessed. Forever. So David's prayer, folks, this is instructive to us, helpful to us. David's prayer is that God would do what he said he would do. And he doesn't pray this from a position of doubt. 
the way we might when somebody makes us a promise and we might suspect that promise and say something like, okay, now I'm going to hold you to that. Right? Because I don't really, I don't fully trust you, so I'm going to hold you to that. Not from that. Right? But out of this grateful gratitude and the recognition that what God was going to do was far greater than what David could have ever envisioned doing. Right? David sat and thought, I want to do something for God. And God said, I'm going to do something for you. And David got it right and said, you know what? That makes you look better than if I did something for you. So my prayer is that you would do exactly as you say for the greatness of your name. And folks, I think that we would understand that the promise that God made to David about a perpetual throne is of far greater consequence to us than the temple that Solomon did build. Now two things then. Two things, and I'm sure that we could expand upon this passage in multiple ways, but two things for our consideration. What is the timeless takeaway from the text? David was dead 500 years. Let me take the application two ways this evening. First of all, to use this passage as a bit of an admonition and a caution to us. To use this passage as a bit of an admonition and a caution to us. Not all ideas, even if they are good ideas, have God's sanction. And I do not say that lightly, folks. There have been no shortage of people, they continue until this present moment, who believe that they have an idea that will come to God's assistance. And in fact, in the not-too-distant future, I'm going to try and elaborate on this a little bit. But I would take the stance that the modern church in the Western world is suffocating under the weight of all of its helpers. All of the people with good ideas of how they can help, the, and I don't, I don't mean individual church members. I mean all of the organizations and the groups and the individuals that all make this fantastic claim. We're, we want to help the church. We want to help. David wanted to help. David wanted to help. David had a really good idea. A godly man said, that's a good idea. A godly man said, not only do I think it's a good idea, but I think God is in on this. But God was not in on this. The Corinthians were trying to help. The Corinthians had a really good idea about how to do ministry. Unfortunately, it involved minimizing the gospel and its power, but it was a really good idea. Not all good ideas have God's sanction. God controls history. God controls destiny. God has demonstrated, folks, his ability to accomplish his purposes and to get his will done. And the single thing that he has demanded of us and insisted upon through human history, from all the period, all those years when there was no organized institution, 
from Adam till Moses, when people worshipped God and served God and made sacrifices to God, but there was no clear-cut organizational structure that brought them all together. God kept all things going. And under the law, God kept all things going. And under the church, God keeps all things going. He is able to do his business. And all he has ever asked, all he has ever insisted upon from us is obedience to what he says. That's all. So just a note of caution that anytime we think, hey, this would be a good idea and would really help, that may not necessarily be true. It may, it may be true. It may be a help. But it doesn't automatically become a help because we think it's a good idea. But more importantly than that, folks, I think that the text demands us to answer a question. It kind of puts a, 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 a dilemma into our hands, and it's a dilemma that's in our hands, but it was particularly in the hands, again, of these people who are 500 years after the death of David, who are, if not recent captives, are the descendants of captives, who are living not under an Israeli king, but under a Gentile king. And you could put it this way, is the passage true? Is the passage true? Look back, if you would, to verse number 12. I'm going to call your attention to verse 12 and to verse number 14. And again, I, I know that you know the answer, but indulge me the rhetorical device. Is the passage true? Verse number 12, of Solomon, he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne. What are the next two words? Forever. And then verse 14, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom. What? Forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. Is it true? Is the passage true? And let me just remind us again where we are historically. Turn back, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 25. Second Kings chapter 25, let's start in verse number 1. I'm sorry, let's back up to chapter 24 and verse number 20. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah until he had cast them out from his presence that Zedekiah, that's who we're looking for, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, Zedekiah's reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host against Jerusalem and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, 
and there was no bread for the people of the land, and the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees, or the Babylonians, were against the city round about, and the king went the way toward the plain. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon. Now if you know about Israeli history, folks, you know what's really tragic about that is that God had told Zedekiah he could live. That all he had to do is surrender to the king of Babylon and he would live. And the whole nation would be spared. But Zedekiah would have none of it. Now again, that was depending upon when you date Chronicles, at least 70 years ago. At least 70 years ago. Because 2 Kings 25 is dealing with the events that bring about the captivity and the dispersion and the destruction of the city. So here we are. We have our Bibles in our hand and we're reading 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and we're being reminded about the Davidic covenant and we're being reminded that it is a covenant of a throne in perpetuity and as far as we know there is not one surviving son of David. Zedekiah was the last descendant of David to sit on the throne of Israel. You can read through Kings. I mean, you've done it. You can read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings. You can, you can read the story of the kings, the descendants of David who sit on the throne. Zedekiah is the last. And the Babylonians kill Zedekiah and his kids. Is the text true? Is the text true? How do you have a throne in perpetuity if you do not have a king to occupy it? Let me ask you if you would to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Let me kind of give you the options, folks. You know the answer to this, but let me kind of give you the options, right? Somewhere, somehow, right, if the throne is going to exist in perpetuity, forever, then somewhere, somehow, there's going to have to be another son of David who can sit on that throne, who can have another son, who can have another son, who can have another son, who can have another son. Or, you can have a descendant of David who doesn't die, who lives forever. Now again, from our New Testament vantage point, that seems to be a no-brainer easy answer. 
But it was the answer, folks, that the people who got Chronicles the first time were expected to discover. And they could discover it in the book of Daniel in chapter 7. Let's turn our attention to verse number 13. I saw in the night visions, Daniel writes, Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, come with clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now again, right? all of that has to be read in the immediate light of what is going on. Daniel was one of those captives. All the kings of Zedekiah were dead all the sons of Zedekiah, all the descendants of David that they knew of were dead. And unless God magically, not magically, but supernaturally reveals to us who a living descendant of David is today, there are no descendants of David that we are aware of. But Christ is that king, folks, and he will occupy the throne. The throne will endure because King Jesus will be sitting upon it. He will occupy the throne of David. This is the true significance of David's kingdom is that he is the man that God chooses to prepare the way for the Messiah. Abraham, David, says the genealogy. Abraham, David, Christ, our Savior, born according to of the seed of David, Romans 1, a descendant of David, the eternal king. So the answer to the question is, is the text true? Absolutely true. How is it true? Because the descendant of, the, of David is Christ, who will reign forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of the eternal reign of our great Savior, Jesus Christ humanly, of the seed of David. Also the Son of God. We thank you for your blessing, for your promise, for the hope that we have. Our hope is their hope, the reign of Christ. Bless us with faith, please. In Jesus' name, amen.